But as you're making your way up to the front, I do want to welcome all of you, um, especially those, I think there's some new faces here. Um, if you're new here, I would like to just give you a special warm welcome. Uh, you know, if you're just checking out our church or checking out Bible study, uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, and you know, Pastor Roger and myself are here for you too, if you're new and you have any spiritual questions or just want to get to know <coughs> more about the church, we'd love to grab a coffee with you sometime, or lunch, or whatever is free, with you, um, free for you. As, um, as Alex mentioned, our, uh, our, our Fridays are actually really busy this fall, and that's actually the reason why I decided to put in 3 John, uh, kind of like a little mini-series, because it's, you know, our, our schedule and our calendar is very sporadic um, this next few months. So instead of jumping back into Mark, which is where we, we intend to return to Mark in the mid to end of October, but from now until then, we're going to just have different events, uh, hangout type things, fellowship things, um, like as, we, as what Alex mentioned earlier about the Kit Kat, the informal meeting. Uh, you, you can actually bring your dinner and just, we're just, it's just time for us to hang out. Um, just an informal time for us to just kind of just relax a little bit at the end of the week, um, eat some of the, buy some of the baked uh, bake goods from the little ones to support our outreach, and, and yeah, just enjoy some time of just fellowship. And there's a lot of events going on, and I'm, and I'm sure uh, Eric will send the emails out in terms of, you know, just in terms of keeping us up to date on what's coming up. If you have your Bibles, please open to 3 John. It's been a while since I've preached through a New Testament book. Uh, the last time I think I did that was, well, I guess we're going through Mark, but to actually go through it for my, through the entire book myself, it's, it's been a joy to be able to study this and to preach this to you. Since 3 John is a short little epistle, I, I'm going to read through the entire chap book. The entire chapter book is the same. It's only one chapter. Uh, but I'm going to read through the entire book. And uh, just so that we can get like a bigger context of what's going on in this little letter. <coughs> 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may, res you, you may prosper and be good, be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish, for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well, to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. He forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, 
and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Father God, thank you for an opportunity for us to look into your word at the end of the week. Lord, we are grateful for the common grace that you have given us through your word and the preaching of your word. And I pray for all of us now that you give us attentive hearts and minds. Be with me as well. Allow, uh, allow yourself to work through me and be able to speak the words that you want. Uh, uh, Lord, give us all attentive hearts and conform our lives to the image of your son. In your son's precious name, amen. Friendships are actually very difficult to maintain. It's hard to maintain a friendship. It's hard to have close relationships with people. Uh, Spurgeon described friendship as this essential part of life. And by that, he means that it's something like, just like the elements, like food and oxygen. There's something that is in human nature that requires us to be in, with other people. I think we see this in the garden when Adam was by himself. God said it is not good for man to be alone. So the result is that he made and created Eve for him, for companionship, for friendship. And he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply so that people can enjoy each other's company. And we know that the world thinks of friendships in very superficial ways. There's a lack of loyalty. There's, there's people that would cancel each other when they find out something bad about them. You know, the world's understanding of friendship is shallow at best. But sometimes we understand that friendships can be difficult even in the context of the church. And that shouldn't be the case because we have the word of the living God that can teach us how we can be good friends. Because we understand that in the context of the church, we're not just friends or acquaintances. We are actually a family. And when we look at this letter, there's this sense in which John is writing to Gaius as someone that is Someone that's friends, someone that's family, someone that he's really intimately close with. The book of 3 John, and really uh, First and Second, Third John, it's, it has an overarching theme of how you're supposed to love God and love other people. Um, John, we know, uh, he is, before he was saved, he was known as the son, one of the sons of thunder. Um, he and his brother were known by that because of their, you know, they're hot-headed. They tend to be a very aggressive uh, when Jesus' opposition came, he said, you should call out angels and destroy them. But I think over time, as they were taught by Jesus and they saw and they witnessed the love of Christ, the apostle John became the son of thunder to the apostle of love. And you can see, even though as he's writing through the Gospels, this word love is just, this is like his favorite word. He loves to talk about Christ's love for us. <clears throat> First John, if you were here, uh, I think it was several years ago, we went through that book. First John talks about the reaction to our love for the Lord. That if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we claim to have experienced the love of Christ in our life, that means that the way that we treat one another should be filled with love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone, knows who, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
And that first John, that book is really a test of your faith. If you truly claim to love Jesus Christ, then therefore you should be loving towards your brothers and sisters in the faith. And second John, he's, he's, it's, it's interesting because, yes, there is a love factor here, but he's about love of truth. Because in second John, when he's writing this book here, he's telling people that we need to guard the truth. Uh, second John, he, John's writing this letter to this, this, this chosen lady in the church, and he, he said, if you truly love God, then you need to protect the truth. Because at that time, when there were, hospitality was a normal thing, um, but it, it was really, to, in order for people to host people, they would usually ask a series of questions and know, and to discern whether or not this person was a believer. And if there was someone that came into the church, or came into their home, and taught a different gospel, they are not to show hospitality to them. Second John it reads, Second uh, John uh, verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participate in his evil deeds. You, know, you have to understand, back then the home was a place where people had important meetings. It was a place where people had, um, would, would have family gathering. But most importantly, the, the home was where the church used to meet. So when non-Christians, particularly non-Christians, uh, uh, false teachers that would go into the church, if, if they house them, if they support them, it's almost like giving them uh, validation of the things that they teach. So John warns them to not to give, to not to show any hospitality to those who teach a different gospel. And then third John is almost like the opposite, it's like the flip side of this coin. In terms of hospitality, Third John talks about how, why you should show hospitality to those that are believers, those who follow Jesus Christ. You need to be willing to give up your comfort to care for those that are in need. Again, in that early church, they understood that hospitality was essential to the gospel being spread all over. Uh, it wasn't like our day and age where we can just go into Airbnb or, or, or hotels. I mean, they did have hotels at the time, but back then, there's, you never know what you'll get because some hotels it be, could be just infested with rodents and um, just an unhealthy place to be. Other places are just really like a trap for thieves to go and rob you. And some hotels back then were just, just really just brothels in disguise. So they needed to be in a place where they can do ministry where they can be, feel refreshed and blessed by those in the church. That's where hospitality comes in. And we know that even in hospitality at that time was it, was, it was, in the Roman world, they interpreted, they understood it as like, we need to be hospitable to people because they had a false god that they worshipped. There was, a, there was a deity that they believed that if you, if you show hospitality to people, then that, that deity will give you some blessings. So even in, in that time, it was somewhat normal for people to show hospitality. So that's like a basic social thing that they're willing to do. And if Christians were not willing to do it, that shows that they, they, they can't even, uh, if they can't even hit that low bar of love, then they, that means that their love is, is deficient. And John talks about that. In his gospel, in John chapter 13, this is when Jesus was about to go to the cross, the last meal that he has with them, he commands them this. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you have love, you have also loved one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love, if you have love for one another. 
part of what makes Christians different and the expectation of being a Christian is that we love one another, that we're willing to give up our comforts and certain liberties to care for those that are in our lives. And when we look at this first eight verses, we see what a friend, what it takes to be a godly friend. Um, if you want to be a godly friend, you want to maintain those godly friendships in the context of this church, there are certain elements that you need to have in your life. That's what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to look at these four different attributes of what a godly friend should have. And we, and we see this dial, this, not really dial, this letter that John writes to Gaius, and we can see just the love and the friendship and the closeness that they have in Christ. And the first thing that you need to have to have a true friendship in the context of the church is that it needs to be centered around truth. The first point is that it has to be centered around truth. Look at verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, who, uh, whom, I love in, <coughs> excuse me, whom I love in truth. You notice the first two words, the elder. Uh, <coughs> John here, as he's writing this, he's in his 90s. He's at his... <coughs> he's, just old, you know, he's just, but I don't think he's just writing this for the sake of letting people know how old he is. I think he's speaking here in terms of his function in the church as well. Yes, he's old, but just because you're old doesn't mean that you can't be an elder. Uh, even in our church, I'm one of the elders here, Roger's one of the elders. We're relatively young compared to some of the other elders that will not be named. Some might be in this room right now. But there are some elders that are young, and in this case, John is both elder in terms of function as well as, as his age. He's the last living apostle, and he's writing this letter to his beloved Gaius. And it says here, beloved, guys. And this word beloved shows up four times in this book. This is in verse 1, and you see here again in verse 2, and in verse 5, and in verse 11. And every time he uses that word, it's always connected to someone that is faithful to the Lord. And beloved is such an endearing term. He's, he's just saying, like, hey, you are my, you're my friend. I, I have this special love for you. And Gaius, he's, this is a very common name at the time. I mean, even in our church, we have a lot of Andrews. We have a lot of Johns. So, you know, how do we know which Gaius this is? And certain commentaries will say it could be this person, that. I don't think it's any of them just because we don't know, or at least we don't know definitively. What we know about Gaius, I think, is all written in this particular epistle. He says this. That he loves Gaius because of the truth that they hold, whom I love in truth. Truth is the thing that, that unites Gaius to John, or Gaius. He, he, they, uh, the thing that defines their relationship is truth. And we know that our lives are like that with one another. As Christians, the thing that, that, sh that should make us, the most common thing that we have is not the fact that we come from a particular ethnical background or social background, whatever it may be. The thing that makes us here, why we meet here every Friday and every Sunday and every week is because we love the truth. We know that the truth is revealed in Scripture, and the only truth that we want to learn and emulate is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ calls himself the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father but through me. So every time we come into the church, we're learning things about the truth, and we're trying to practice the truth. And that's what they, uh, John has in common with Gaius here. They have this truth, that's in, uh, this truth that, they're, that, that binds them together. And, you know, truth is not something that our culture loves. They don't love to speak in these definitive terms. As Christians, we know that we operate off truth, and we can't be ashamed of the things that's revealed in Scripture. The world is constantly trying to make us 
compromise and just let go of certain views because these things are old-fashioned and you have to be prepared to be canceled as you hold on to the truth. The truth is what we have. The truth is what will sustain us. The truth is, is, set, is set by the Lord and we live under the realities that God has placed in our lives. And we love that truth. We're not ashamed of it. And neither is, was John and Gaius here. They have this love for the truth and that's what built them together. And I wonder if that's your life. Do you see yourself centered around truth? When you think about the friends you have, do you decide who to be, who do you want in your, in your circle of friends based on, you know, that person is funny or that person uh, has, is well-connected? What are the reasons why you build your relationships with people in the church? Because oftentimes, the things that cause division in the church is not because they hold on to truth, it's because they forgot the truth. When you think about fights that goes on in the church, when there's quarreling and division, it's always because one person decides that their opinion or their view of things is more important than the truth that's revealed in Scripture. And we see, even when I read through this entire book, that there's going to, there's, next week's sermon, we're going to be introduced to this guy named Diotrephes. He's a guy that did not care about the truth, so much so that he's actually countering the Apostle John and other teachings because he saw himself as the first and primary person. He viewed his way of life as the way it should be. He was no longer living in truth. And like Gaius here, he's someone that, uh, that has the same truth, that holds the same truth as the Apostle John, and therefore he has this, they have this tight and close relationship. When you think about your life, are you living in truth? As Christians, we're called to speak the truth in love to one another. We are a people of the truth. The church is a pillar and place for the truth. We learn truth here, we practice the truth here, and then the world looks at the truth that we live and they want to know more about this truth. So our friendship, our, all of our friendships and our relationships here in the church, first and foremost, must be driven by truth. And secondly, not only that, but if you want to be a good friend, you want to have a close relationship with people in the church, the second thing that you need is prayer. It must be filled with prayer. <coughs> Notice verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Again, he talks, he uses that beloved again to just talk about how, hey, I've been praying for you. And he says he's praying in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health. Now, I know that certain, I will just say, false teachers prosperity gospel mainly, they would use this verse to kind of justify, well, the Lord wants you to have good health. <clears throat> so you look at John, he's praying for them to have good health, and actually that is true. There are occasions when, you know, broken clock is, at least, is right, at least, is correct twice a day. And sometimes in the prosperity gospel, they, I think they kind of hijack this, this verse because they like the word prosper. And, you know, John is praying in the context, he wants Gaius to prosper in, in every area, not just his um, you know, in terms of wealth, but even in health. But he's not saying that that's the most important thing. He's just saying that, and it's like a, this is just a general way of saying, I hope things are well with you. And John cares about him, so he's praying that in every area of his life, that he's doing well. But more importantly than that, he says that he prays that his soul prospers. See, at the end of verse 2, he says, just as your soul prospers. See, he's making this little contrast here where he, said he sees and he knows the spiritual maturity of Gaius. He said, you're probably up here spiritually, and I hope that your health and everything else would match it. 
It's possible that Gaius is sick or maybe unhealthy. But although he is physically un, could possibly physically weak, he is spiritually strong. This is a person that is a titan in the faith. He is, uh, he is strong in the faith. And, and John here just praying that, hey, I hope everything else is well, just as well as your spiritual life as well. And again, when we think about how even when we pray for each other, oftentimes I feel like we pray the opposite. We focus more on the physical thing and not the spiritual things. Right? When we think about how we pray for each other, how often do we pray for spiritual things? Usually our prayer requests are things like, oh, help me do well at work or help me get good grades. And these things aren't, these things aren't bad. They're fine. They're perfectly fine. But how often do we pray because we ask for prayer requests in terms of just our spiritual condition? How often do we ask, like, hey, can you pray for me? I, want to, I, want, I really want to grow in Christ-likeness in this particular area. I, I, don't, want, I don't want my speech to, to misrepresent Christ. I want my speech to be honorable and filled with salt and, 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 and know the right and know discernment and, and speak with wisdom. Or you pray that you, for the, the Lord work in your heart so that you're, you get rid of bitterness or anger. Most of our prayers are focused on the physical as opposed to the spiritual. And I think there needs to be a, a balance of both. I'm not saying you can't pray for the physical things, but I think that it shows a lot of what goes on in your heart when the only thing you pray for are the physical things. It means that you are a very shallow person. And true godly prayer is focused on the eternal things. Prayer is what knits us all together. If you think about the entire New Testament, I think almost every single New Testament book has some sort of reference to prayer. Paul often ends his epistles by saying, either pray for us or we're praying for you. And you know that in any church, when there is a strong movement towards whether evangelism or missions or anything, it's because they're praying for each other. Prayer is a way that we knit our lives with each other. And understand that Gaius and John, they're not close to each other. He's not like writing, it's not like a, he's writing this note in class and passing this person next to him. He's He's probably in prison right now, and he's wrote, he wrote this little uh, epistle to Gaius, and even though they're miles and miles apart, the act of prayer brings him close to him. When we think about prayer in our lives, prayer is actually, I, th- I would argue, more valuable than even some of the practical things that we do for each other. Because if you do tangible things like, you know, you give them money, you can always get that back. But time is something that you have that's limited, and you have something that's limited, and you are called, and you're, and, and, you call, and you're praying for them. So you're spending that time that you have on this earth for someone else. You're praying for them. You're, you're praying for their physical health. You're praying for their spiritual well-being as well. It takes, ta- <clears throat> it takes time and sacrifice to pray for each other. And I think, that's for, I think that's why sometimes a church gets spiritually weak. It's because we, are just, we see each other as just kind of just, you know, acquaintances, and we're not praying for each other on a, in a regular basis. And sometimes it's a discipline. You know, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And, and we know even now when we look at a good friend that we have in Jesus, he is still praying for us. When Jesus in his earthly ministry, when his apostles were still here, he was praying for them. <clears throat> he was praying that, the, that they would hold fast to the faith, <clears throat> that they will not waver in the faith, and ultimately that, they will, that he'll see them again in glory. And we should be praying for each other because our Savior modeled prayer. And in fact, when we were going through the book of Mark, you recall that <clears throat> before Jesus chose the apostles, he, was, he spent all night praying for them. <clears throat> I think part of that prayer is just that these people will mature and that they will be effective for the glory of God. 
He knit his heart with these disciples. And prayer is something that is essential in the life of the Christian. I think someone have once said that prayer is like breathing to a Christian. It should be normal to us. Paul writes in Ephesians that we should pray without ceasing. Prayer should be the normal part of our lives. So ask yourself, when you look at the totality of, 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 of this week, just all the hours that you spent in your waking moments, how many of that was used in prayer? And, and you, know, to forget, you know, take out the, the meal ones and the times we had to pray at church, you know, when we before a sermon or after a sermon. How many, of the, how many minutes have you used to pray for one another? Do you pray for your friends, your believing friends? Do you pray for those that are, are lost? Do you pray for those that are suffering? Do you pray for those that are even being blessed or, or, and their life is going well? You know, I think that's why uh, unity, you can tell a church if they're united. I, I, I would argue that you can tell a church united if they're praying for each other because they actually do care about each other. They're thinking about them. They're praying for them. They're asked follow-up questions because they care, and therefore they pray. So if you want to be a good friend, you pray for one another. When I was at Shepherd's Conference this last, um, I guess, a few months ago, uh, I was, it's always cool going back because I always felt that grace now at this point, it's like going back to your parents' house. You, know, you kind of go back and you see like, oh, the furniture's different now and you, you see old friends and things are different. I feel there's a little comfort there, but you know, this, is my, this is my home church, but that's kind of like the church I was, I kind of tr- was trained under. And I remember just seeing some of these dear old ladies and dear old saints, these old men, and they'll just mention that in passing, hey, man, I've been praying about you. And, you know, that was the first Shepherds Conference I've been in, like, years. So to be able to hear that from someone I haven't seen in years encouraged me more than a John MacArthur sermon. Don't tell him that. Because prayer, it takes effort. And to hear someone praying for you that you haven't seen it means a lot more than any message that is delivered by a famous pastor. I think that's where Christians, for all of us, we know we don't pray as much as, as, much as we would like. And I would encourage all of us, and this again, not just for you, but for me as well, that we make time for it. Whether it's a, a car ride, or you're sitting on the bus, or when you have some devotional time, you read God's word and you pray for a few people in the church. Prayer is what makes a good friend. So not only, are, not only is truth the thing that makes a good friend, our lives are centered around truth, and, uh, but then we're also connected in prayer. But third, a good friend is someone that would encourage you to live holy lives. So holiness would be the third point. Notice in verse 34, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you're walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. He's, again, just writing to, to Gaius and just saying, hey, I've heard so much about you. So many of the things that you've done matched the way that our Savior would live. He said it brought him no greater joy than this. Understand that is the pastor's greatest, greatest joy. My, great, my greatest joy is not to get a pay raise in this church. My greatest joy is not that there's some sort of children's ministry or that our evangelism or missions or all of these things that we do thrives. Although those things are great, the thing that makes me happy as a pastor is when you look more like my Savior. We look more like Jesus Christ. 
when a sermon or a counseling or some sort of dialogue makes you reconsider your life to think, hey, I want to let go of that sin and embrace my Savior. That gives all pastors great joy. And I hope that that gives you great joy as well. When you interact with those around you, when you think about your brothers and sisters in the faith, Yes, it's exciting when they have a new job. Yes, it's exciting when they get a raise. Yes, it's exciting when they get engaged. All of those things are good. Praise the Lord for those things. But how often do we praise the Lord when someone has finally had victory over the sin? When that brother or sister is finally content and satisfied in Christ? When that brother or sister is no longer struggling with lust anymore? when they see the hatred, the horrid, horrible things of sin, and they're willing to cut those things out of your life, we should be rejoicing and praising the Lord for it because it brings us great joy to see others walking in a manner worthy of our Savior. And we understand when we look at our good friend Jesus, he is the perfect one in every area of his life. He modeled holiness for all of us. The epistles and the New Testament after the Gospels really explains that. They kind of give us more details on what that might look like. And holiness is something that only Christians can strive for because we are made into a new creature. That's why it's different when you look at your non-believing friends and your believing friends. Your non-believing friends will not call you out for your sin because they're living in sin. They might, they might call you out on things if it benefits them. Like, you know, if you have a coworker that's lazy, you might confront them on their laziness just so that you don't get fired, you know, or vice versa. You might be not doing a good job, and hey, you need to be more, be more attentive in the detail, and you're lazy, and you might be confronted for their benefits. But, in, but for the Christian, we call people out to live a holy life, not because it's for our benefit, not just for, yes, it gives us happiness, but that doesn't, it's not really for our benefit. It's for the glory of God. We want Christ to be represented. We want Christ to be made known in our lives. So it should bring us great joy when someone is shedding off that old self and they're showing more glimmers of our Savior. When we think about holiness, there's a sense in which we have to be willing to confront each other as well. You have to think, the Proverbs talk about faithful, the wounds of a friend. That means if you look at your life, if you look at the friends that you have, you just evaluate your own heart first. If you think about all the conversation, have there ever been a moment where you find yourself needing to confront someone? Because you should. You should confront someone. And why? Because you love them. You know that sin corrupts. It robs people of joy. It steals glory from the Lord. And out of that love for them, you're willing to confront them. It is an uncomfortable conversation and a very difficult one, but you love them enough to point them out in this area of your life. You might not be as holy as you can be. And think of the other way as well. Think about all the friends around you. If, faith, if faithful the wounds of a friend, and you notice that all the people around you or all the people that you're drawn to are people that never confront your sin, that tells you something about yourself, doesn't it? Because it means that you don't, either someone confronts you and you've had some history of just dismissing sin or justifying your sin, but you should be appreciative of those people that are willing to have that difficult conversation because they see in you something that you cannot see in yourself. And it is a complete, and it's completely a, a means of grace by the Lord to raise up friends in your life to point those things out. It is good for us to have other brothers and sisters confront us lovingly that our lives does not match up to Scripture. Holiness is what... Uh, we are expected because you know, scripture tells us 
we are to be holy for our Father, Heavenly Father is holy, just like our, our Father is holy. So if you want to be a good friend, you want to be corrected, you want to be teachable. At the same time, you also want to be able to confront other people as well. And it should bring you great joy when people overcome sin. And you should celebrate and rejoice when you overcome sin in your own life. So not only are good friends people that center around truth or people that are praying for one another and also are holy and calling us and calling other people and each other and just all walking in a manner that's holy to the Lord. But our last point is that it's filled with love. It's filled with love. Look at verse 5 to verse 8. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish. For the brethren, especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. John, again, is writing to Gaius, and he's, in this, he's just affirming and just saying, what an encouragement you, uh, that you are to me, that you've been acting so faithfully, that you actually serve those, and it says, especially strangers. And it's so fascinating, because, you know, strangers, I mean, again, back then, they didn't, you didn't know if that person that came to your door was really that person. I mean, it's, it's a qualification for elders to be hospitable. And I think Gaius is that. He is hospitable. He is, he is elder qualified in a lot of ways. Because to be hospitable at that time required a tremendous amount of faith. You don't know who these people really are. You don't know if they're just pretending Christian, to be a Christian. They can say that they're sent by the apostle or, or, the, or, yeah, or any of the apostles. But you don't know. You, you don't know if you go to sleep and, that, and the other person in your room might hurt you or your family. But Gaius, he just has this tremendous amount of warmth and trust in the Lord that other people take notice. Other believers are aware of this guy, and they're just telling other people. You know, when our church, whenever we have um, people come to our conference, when we start a conference, or you know, whether it's the church family retreats or a conference here, even just guests when they come, one of the, one of the most common things I hear about this church is that this church is very welcoming. We're really good at welcoming, being hospitable when they're here. In fact, even a few months ago, uh, when the TMU people came, you know, some, a lot of you hosted those TMU students. We're really good at being hospitable. We're really good at, at being lovely in, the, in, the, in that area. In fact, when I was down in L.A., I was sitting with our friend Austin Duncan at a night church, and he wrote this little note, kind of like a little... It was like, we're like two little schoolgirls or something. In the middle of the term, he wrote those little notes, and he handed it to me, and he said, like, I had a dear Ray, our family had a great time. Please invite us again to your retreat. Love, Austin Duncan. And I said, I got you, man. I got you. I got you and your family. One of these days, I'll bring you back. You know, that like our church is really good at being warm and welcoming. That's good. I affirmed the things that, I affirmed that about our church. We're really good at that. But I wonder if that's all that we are. Because it's really easy to be warm in the beginning. Or it's really easy to show love for just like a first impression or for a weekend. But it takes a lot more work to love those that we have to live life with. It's not easy to love your brother or sister if you have to put up with them every single week, every single month, and every single year. 
But yet that's the expectation, isn't it? Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, we are familiar with this. The, all of these attributes of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It's not un, it does not act unbecoming. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffer. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in truth. Bears all things. Endures all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. It's not true love unless it's a consistent love. And I think when you look at the life of Gaius, he had this consistent love. So much so that other people are telling others about him. That's why John writes that they, in verse 6 that they have testified to your love before the church. These people, these traveling missionaries, when they go into Gaius' house, and they have such a pleasant experience that when they go to another church or they go back to their home church, they're telling people, hey, if you ever go to the city, look for Gaius. This is the place that you want to be. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He loves the Lord. And it says here that, and that John writes that they send him on the way in a manner worthy of God. That means that Gaius, in the way that he cares for people, matches how Christ would love people. And, under, and remember, remember the guy that's writing this. This is the Apostle John. He understands that selfless love because he witnessed it in the life of Jesus Christ. He, he saw Jesus care for those little children when, when he and the other apostles were, were like saying, hey, no, Jesus doesn't want to spend time with you. He saw the leopard begging and crying and Jesus taking the time to heal this leopard. He saw the demoniacs uh, being, having their mind restored. He saw all of these things, how Jesus was interrupted here and there so that he can give them a little bit of peace. Jesus cared for these people in a practical way. And John is affirming that your love here matches that of our Savior. Can that be said about you? When, if you were to ask someone, what is the one thing that defines me? Will love be that attribute? And I would assume that most of us fall short. Right? We're willing to admit like we don't love the way that we should. And it's really my exhortation to all of us that we love in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And that does take sacrifice. It does take patience. It's this, it's this enduring kind of love, this long-suffering love that we see throughout the entire scriptures. From all the Old Testament, there's a reason why Jesus, I mean, the, the Yahweh is known as long-suffering because he understands, he loved Israel, and he put up with them for years and generations. But yet for us, when it comes to just, oh, that person rubbed me the wrong way this one week at, on Friday night, and therefore I'm not going to talk to him ever again. That shows how shallow our love is. And, more, and what's worse, it shows us how little we think about God's love towards us. Because if we understand God's love towards us, we'd be tremendously gracious and loving towards those around us. We don't love those that are easy to love. That's not a test of your love. A true test is when you're having to love someone that's very difficult to love, to pray for them, to minister to them, to find practical ways to care about them when it is not easy to do so. Gaius represented Christ in this way. And, it's, and he, John continues by saying that for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Again, I mentioned that hospitality, there were non-believers that did it. It was just a cultural thing. But, you know, you, do, you never know what you'll get when, if you go to a non-believer's home. So that's why John Gaius is such, it was just, it was just, he was just so 
And it's just so amazing that, he's, that he cares for the believers this way, that they don't need to go to the Gentiles. They go straight to him. And it says in verse 8 that, therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. This is actually the verse that we use uh, when we are supporting our missionaries. Whenever our missionary uh, comes, they talk about how we support them financially. And then you know, behind the scenes, uh, the mission support team and myself, we go through things and we ask them, hey, what do you need? What are some things that we can, what are the practical things that you need? It's usually prayer and money, and we provide both. The reason why we do that is because we love our missionaries. We love them. We want them to be able to basically represent Christ on our behalf to these different nations. And in the coming months, there will be more of that. We'll see more new missionaries come in, and we'll be supporting new missionaries because we love, uh, we love missionaries, and we love that the gospel be made known to other people. But yet, what's really cool when you just look at this context here is that there's, they think practically here. And I know this is, there's, some, there's some, some check subjectivity and wiggle room here because love is not just something that you say or something that you feel because it's, has, it's something that you do. Yes, it, there is some emotional things to it. And yes, there's a, a knowledge of what, what true love is. But if, you don't, if you're not willing to do anything about it, then again, it, that's not true love. James talks about this in James chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. We love truth, but we don't always love to love people. We have, churches like ours, we're really good at knowing truth. I mean, we preach God's word. We have Sunday school. We have, we have different languages, so we could be able to pre- preach God's word in multiple languages. And we love to learn. That's great. But that love needs to be transferred to something tangible in this world. There's a reason why Jesus tells us that the world will know you by your good works. You know, we're trying to find a way to show love to each other, both in terms of in the context of the church and even to those around us and non-believers. And I think that's something we need to think about. When we say that we love this church, what does that mean? Does it just simply mean that you show up and then leave right away? Is that really what love means? Just think about any relationship. If you're not willing to invest in it, then you can say all you want about how much you love them, but it doesn't mean anything unless you do something about it. Steve Lawson would say there's a difference between loving someone and asking them to marry you, you know, in the context of dating and marriage. So, yeah, it is, right? There's one thing we say, I love you, and there's another thing say, I, uh, will you marry me? You're taking that initiation to do more than just words. And I think as Christians, we need to go think beyond just saying that we love the church. We need to ask yourself, how can I love the church? That's some, and, that, and that might look different for each and every single one of you. For some, it might be willing to stay up later to talk to that friend that's grieving. Others of you might be waking up early to talk to that friend that's grieving. Others maybe just, hey, that, I want to I treat my friend to lunch because I know he's struggling financially. Or just to call them, you know, find ways, whatever the Lord has gifted you in, do those things because you love them. Just like how Gaius, he was gifted, obviously, in hospitality. He was using the gift of God that's given him so that the Lord can be 
praise that the Lord, that the people in the church all over in this New Testament area can, can say, hey, praise the Lord that God has raised up this person like Gaius in my life when I went through that area and I needed a, a place to stay, I needed food to eat, any water drink. Gaius was really the one that, the only one that supported me. May that be said about you, that you can be so reliable because of how loving you are to them, that they could think, okay, that person, if I'm in, a, if I'm in trouble, I know I can call this one person. And, that, and may, that, may you be that friend, because that's what makes a good friend, because it rep- it's a good picture of our Savior. It's not only that a Christian life is filled with truth, and that it's filled with prayer, filled with holiness, but filled with love. And again, if you have all four of these things, then I know if, if each and every single one of us here just enjoying ours, just practice those four things well in a regular life, this ministry will grow. And not in terms of numeric numbers. I'm talking about in, the, in our unity, in our love for each other, in our care for one another. And it is what my hope for all of us. Because again, when we practice these four things, we're really just being like our Savior. Our Savior is, is the one that's defined by all of these things. He, he, he is truth. He prays for us. He's the, he's the one that is, is truth, and he's walking in truth. He's the holy God, but he loves us. Jesus told us, he told his disciples that there is no greater love than this, that one person is willing to lay down his life for their friends. And Jesus actually did that. He laid down his life for all of us. We were not friends when we, were, when we entered into this world. We were not friends with him. But because of his grace, because of his love, he's willing to die for us all. That he reconciled. We were no longer, we were once enemies, but now we are a friend of our Lord. And I hope that as we think about this passage, that it will work in your heart to turn away from some of the things that are our old habits and to be more like our Savior, to, to live in truth, to pray for one another, to live holy lives, and to be filled with love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask you for grace to live out these truths. Thank you for, this, for, for, the, for preserving this little short epistle and this engagement between John and Gaius, that we're able to get a glimmer of how faithful living looks like. Lord, we know that we do not, uh, we do not hold on to the truth as we ought to at times, that there are moments where we struggle or even embarrassed by your word. And Lord, may you work in our hearts to, not have, to, to change that. May we never be ashamed of the gospel, no matter what, where we are and what time we're in. May we be people that are constantly in prayer that we, that we pray and care for those, that we knit our hearts of those in the church. Lord, there are, there are a lot of the people that are suffering, and there are a lot of those that are rejoicing, and we want to be part of that because we are the family of God. And Lord, I do pray that we also strive for holiness as well, that we learn to turn away from sin, that we constantly uh, fight sin and cut off sin in our life, and may we rejoice when we see that in our life and others as well. And Lord, help us. Help us to be able to love in the way that you love. Lord, we know that this high bar of willing to sacrifice our lives for our friends is not something that we do naturally. 
But Lord, this is the expectation because you have done it for us. You paved the way. You gave us example on what it means to lo truly love those in your life. And Lord, we ask that we can work our way to that. Give us the love and the, just the small things and allow us to be able to love our brothers and sisters in a way that is pleasing to you. Thank you for your word and this message tonight. In your son's precious name, amen. Oh, okay, discussion coach. I have two of them because I know we have refreshments tonight, so then we're going to, um, you know, we can keep this discussion short. And also we're going to end early tonight because of the men's conference. I hope that you've signed up for it if you're a guy. If you haven't, you can sign up. I guess you can just show up or sign up. Um, just talk with Alex or Eric. So first question, how can I show love to people who may not be easy to love? And again, this kind of is what I was talking about earlier with Gaius. I'm sure not all the people that Gaius hosted were people that are easy to host, but yet he, those people testified to the fact that Gaius is, is just so love, loving to them. So then when you look, reflect in your own heart, how can I show love to people that may not be easy to love? A second question is, in what ways can I be more open to correction and be more bold to correct others? I guess that's like two questions there. Um, again, this is the holiness one. <clears throat> the, I think it was the third point. Um, because I think what makes a church effective uh, more than anything is holiness. Um, that's why we preach. We preach not to entertain you. We preach so that you can be moved to be more like our, our Savior. So that's that question. Like how can I be bold in terms of correcting others, and how can I be more open to correction? Uh, what, ways in, what, what are ways in which I can be more mindful when people um, correct, correct us, and how can we be bold in caring for others and correcting their shortcomings and sin as well? All right, thank you guys.